Well, if you remain standing, we're coming now to the end of chapter 5 in John's Gospel. And Jesus is still refuting the religious leaders. They have been attacking him. They've been questioning that his miracles, they've been questioning how is he claiming to be God. And Jesus is going to continue that refute in chapter 5, starting in verse 30. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 47. John 5 should be up on the screens. Hear the word of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord for us today. You can sit down and let's pray together as we seek to understand and apply God's word into our hearts. Father in heaven, We do come to you today in great need. We ask that you would speak to us through your living word by the power of your spirit. Help us to know the truth about Jesus, that we would listen to his voice and not the many other voices that distract us from the truth. I pray this in the name and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, these days, no one wants to be on the wrong side of history. You hear that phrase all the time, being on the wrong side of history. There's a culture of fear right now within our society that pressures us, that if we're going to say something out of line with the current culture narrative, then we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. We see that with topics like gay marriage or abortion or LGBTQ rights, and the list could go on and on and on. 
But as followers of Jesus Christ, we should not be afraid of such discussions. Instead, we should be afraid of displeasing God and what he says in his word. Because if we do that, if we neglect God's word and what he says on these topics, we truly will be on the wrong side of history. Well, today's passage is framed like a courtroom drama. In it, Jesus will present a case for why he is, in fact, equal to God. He'll provide witnesses to the religious leaders. He'll, he'll line them up one by one. And kids, if you're drawing a picture, I know some of you kids are in the service. We're glad you're here. You can could, could maybe draw a picture of a courtroom, some of these witnesses that you're going to hear about. And then after providing these witnesses, he's going to bring indictments upon the religious leaders. And as we watch this drama unfold, we need to be asking ourselves, which side of history are we going to be on, the right side or the wrong side? Not according to our culture's perspective, but according to God's. If you remember, the Jewish religious leaders had created this environment within Israel, a religious environment that seemed to be honoring to God. But in fact, it was uh, an environment where their practices were driving people away from God. They were mostly basing their teachings on uh, performance and appearance and status. These religious leaders loved that kind of status. And so when Jesus came onto the scene, they weren't so happy because Jesus upset the apple cart. He, he destroyed the status quo. And so these religious leaders, they're furious. They want to kill Jesus. They're questioning, why do you have the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? Well, what Jesus is going to do as he responds to them, he's going to show them who is really in control. He's also going to show them who is really on trial. It's not Jesus. Leads us to the main argument from today's text. If you're taking notes, this would be a good time to write something down. The main point or the main argument of this text is that Jesus has given us sufficient evidence to overcome barriers to believing in him. Jesus has given us sufficient evidence to overcome barriers to believing in him. And in our text today, Jesus presents these witnesses that prove his identity. And then he cross-examines the religious leaders. And it leads to the two main points of Jesus' words in today's text, and it's this. First, listen to his witnesses. That's in verses 30 to 39 of our text. And second, beware of barriers to believing in him. That's in verses 40 to 47. So let's first look at the text and consider the witnesses Jesus presents, starting in verse 30. There's five of them, starting with Jesus himself. Listen to verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What Jesus is doing here, he's continuing his argument from last week's passage. He's telling the people, I am the one who's been given authority to judge, and God the Father has given me that authority. So he's affirming this authority to judge all mankind. But he's also qualifying that judgment that it's all done according to the will of the Father. He's not operating on his own. 
In other words, he judges in the same manner as God the Father, with the same authority as God, because he is, in fact, God. And like God the Father, the judgment Jesus is, he makes are just. They are fair. It means they are right. They are perfectly aligned with God's will. And I want to just stop for a moment and ask, I wonder if some of us have a hard time believing that Jesus is the judge of all. We mentioned this a little bit last week. Do you have a hard time believing Jesus is your judge? If you know and love Jesus, you can believe he is the savior. But God's word affirms that he is also our judge. And as a perfect judge, he never gets it wrong. So if you are wondering today if the wrongs that have been done to you will be made right. Remember, Jesus is a perfect and fair judge. Those things will be judged, whether it's in the next life, on this life, or by Jesus on the cross. Those things will be paid for and judged by Jesus. Those things within society that you wonder, how could God, a just God, allow this kind of evil in the world? Well, friends, Jesus pays attention. He sees everything. He knows everything. And he is a just and fair judge. Maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Or maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus is a just and fair judge as you think about your friends or family, loved ones that have gone and uh, have died. You, You wonder, well, where are they right now? We can take comfort in the fact that Jesus is a just and perfect judge. You may not know the answer to that, but you can trust in him. Well, then Jesus says something curious about himself as a witness in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So here's Jesus. He's one of the witnesses. He's also saying he's the judge if we're thinking about a courtroom drama. But he says, if I alone bear witness, my testimony is not true. We mustn't mistake what Jesus is saying here. Jesus never says anything untrue. Everything he talks about is true. He is the standard of truth. Later on in John, he's going to say, I am the truth. So Jesus is never going to say anything untrue. What is happening here is he is appealing to the Jewish leader's way of thinking and the process that they use to determine the authenticity of a claim or a charge. That thinking came from Deuteronomy 19. Where in verse 15 it says that a single witness should not suffice. And only on the evidence of two or three witnesses should a charge be established. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you're right. If it's only me claiming to be the son of God. If it's only me claiming to be equal with God. Then it's true. I realize you don't need to accept my testimony. Then he goes on, but don't worry. (laughs) I've got many more witnesses. Listen to verse 32. Here's one of them. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus here is showing he's not alone. He's not a sole witness. There's another one who bears witness. And that is God the Father. That's who he's referring to. He's going to expound upon this just a bit later in the passage. So we're not going to go into it too much here. But before he expounds on God the Father as a witness, he wants to give the religious leaders uh, a witness that they can take hold of, that's a little more tangible, 
And so the next witness Jesus calls to the stand is John the Baptist. Listen to verse 33. It says, you said to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. If you've been with us throughout the weeks in the Gospel of John, if you're here last December and earlier this spring, you'll remember in chapter 1 about the testimony of John the Baptist. He was sent by God to be a witness to Jesus, and he testified openly. He testified publicly. In verse 29 of chapter 1, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 34 of chapter 1, after performing Jesus' baptism, he says flat out, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. These were all public events. John made it very clear that he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Christ, the Messiah. And he has identified Jesus as that Messiah. There's no mistaking it. The religious leaders, many of them probably heard the words of John the Baptist. They knew his testimony. But as great as John's testimony was, Jesus says he didn't need John's testimony. He's got better witnesses than John. He didn't need John's testimony to validate who he, w- he was and is. He had greater testimony, and he mentions John's testimony for the religious leader's sake and for our sake, that they might believe and that we might believe. So listen to verse 34. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Well, here we see the deep love and mercy and compassion of our Lord on display. He loves his enemies. These are his enemies. The Jewish leaders, they wanted to kill him. But he is saying, I've said these things that you may believe. Even as they wanted to kill Jesus, Jesus is saying, I want you to believe in me. No matter how much you hate me right now, I want you to believe. And Jesus' posture has not changed in 2,000 years. The same posture is for you and for me. Because all of us at one time were his enemies. And yet Jesus reached out to us that we might be saved. He died for us that we might be saved. And for many of us in this room, we have trusted in him. We know him. We love him. But there may be some, even in the room today, who you are still at odds with Jesus. You you are still kind of holding him at arm's length. You have rejected him in some way. Well, hear the voice of Jesus through his word, his voice of mercy and compassion. He wants you to be saved. He has died that you might have life. He came not to judge and condemn the world, but that the whole world might be saved through him. So the question is, would you believe today if you haven't already? Well, as he goes on into the next witness, he presents himself and John the Baptist. The third witness he presents is not a person, it's rather a set of actions. So look with me at verse 36. It's his works. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I'm doing 
bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What is Jesus saying? In effect, he's saying, well, if you won't believe me, if you won't take my testimony, and if you won't believe John the Baptist, at least look at what I'm doing. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look at what I'm teaching. Those things, they all bear witness to my identity. And just next week, he's gonna, we're going to see Jesus feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's going to walk on water in front of his disciples. Jesus saying, these works show that I am the Son of God. John calls these things signs, these works. They're intended to convince us that Jesus has been sent from God and is the Savior of the world. So if you are a Christian today, how can you have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Look at his works, which include all of his teachings and all of his miracles. Look at his works. Look at the evidence. They bear witness that he is the Son of God and God himself. Well, the fourth witness Jesus calls is God the Father. Listen to verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Well, now Jesus makes clear what he referenced in verse 32, that God the Father is a witness as well. Well, how has God the Father witnessed that Jesus is the Son of God? In a moment, we'll see that he's done it through his word, that the very scriptures speak of Jesus. He's borne witness through his word. He's borne witness through the works that Jesus is doing that we just talked about. Those are the Father's works. Jesus says, I don't do anything on my own, only what the Father says to do, I do. He's born witness in that way. And also in the other gospel accounts, we see that God the Father bore witness in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But the religious leaders don't accept this testimony. They don't accept the testimony from God the Father. And so Jesus heaps a strong indictment upon them. Remember, Jesus is a just judge. He knows them fully. He knows their hearts fully. He knows all of our hearts fully. He knows that they don't know God. And they don't have his word abiding in their hearts. Because he says, if you did know God, if you did receive his testimony, you would believe in me. Because God the Father has testified of me. Is not, they have not believed in the one sent by God, who was Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to the fifth witness that, Jesus, that uh, Jesus gives that testifies to his identity. And that's the witness of the scriptures. Listen to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. To give you a picture of what the Jewish religious leaders were like, these men were really good at Bible study. Really good. I mean, if you think you're good at Bible study, they had you beat. They were diligent. And we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures here. They were diligent in their study. They were renowned. There's, there's uh, historians that have written about their dedication to the scriptures. 
But Jesus says, you know what? You've been doing it all wrong. You've missed the whole point. Because the whole point of the scriptures is that they are pointing to me. They're pointing to the Messiah. I am the Messiah. That's what Jesus is telling them. So it makes us wonder, well, how could this be? How could they miss the point in such a big way? I mean, they're studying God's word for crying out loud. What's well, because they read the scriptures religiously. They read it as if uh, it was something to be mastered, as if they just obeyed exactly, then they would be saved. That life was contained in the law, in the prophets, that they could get life just by reading and knowing and having a ton of Bible trivia, much more than any of us. But Jesus says that's wrong. It's the scriptures that testify against them. They refuse to come to him that they might have life. Well, this section of scripture should cause us to pause just for a moment. It should cause us to question how do we approach God's word? And as we get into that, first off the bat, I want to acknowledge, if you know and love Jesus Christ, how you approach the scriptures is already vastly different than the religious leaders. So it's not a one-to-one comparison. Because if you love Jesus, that means you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And if you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is illuminating to you the very will of God. He's speaking to you through his word. And so right off the bat, you know that you are in a different category than these religious leaders. But even so, we need to heed the implicit warning here in the text. Because in terms of salvation, these verses show us that memorizing Bible verses or going to Awana does not save your soul. It's a good thing, does not save your soul. Being good at Bible study does not save your soul. Knowing Greek and Hebrew and how to parse verbs and do an in-depth word study or if you have a PhD in the Bible, it's all good stuff, but it will not save your soul. The Bible can't save your soul. Only Jesus can save your soul. And that said, the Bible, God's word, is essential for leading us to Jesus. That's why it's so ironic that they missed the boat completely. Paul says that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. It's penetrating to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It's through God's word that we learn who God is. It's through God's word that we learn the way of salvation. It's through God's word that we can hear the voice of God speaking. God's word is worth more than vast amounts of silver or gold. So we're not devaluing the Bible here. The point is the Bible is pointing us to Jesus Christ, that we might believe in him and have life. Remember, the goal is not for us to master the Bible, but it's for us to be mastered by the one to whom the scriptures point, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's all about Jesus, and the religious leaders, they missed it. They missed the point altogether. Well, there are the five witnesses. We got Jesus, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, God the Father, and the scriptures. All of these witnesses give the same testimony, that Jesus is 
the Son of God. That should give you great confidence if you are a follower of Jesus today. There is abundant testimony that Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God. These witnesses are given so that you and I might believe. But even with this clear evidence, many people today still do not believe in Jesus. And that's what the next section of our text addresses and the following warning emerges. Beware of barriers to believing or coming to him. We need to watch out for three barriers that Jesus reveals through his accusations of these religious leaders. Starting in verse 40. And the first barrier to belief or coming to him is pride. Listen to verses 39 and 40 again. I'm going to do 39 for some context. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I want to focus on verse 40 here for a minute. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That shows us there was a deep stubbornness and pride in the religious leaders that prevented them from coming to Jesus. And the Bible is clear throughout. God is far from the proud, but he is close to the crushed, the broken, the humble. It means that if you don't think you need Jesus, you will refuse to come to him. No matter how much evidence there is, there could be all the evidence of the world, but if you don't think you need him, if you're too proud, you will refuse to come to him. If you think you know better than God, if you think that Jesus is on trial, you will refuse to come to Jesus because you think you're the judge, not him. If you're full of arrogance and pride, you will refuse to come to him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This means that it's only those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. Only those can enter the kingdom of God. And for those of us who have entered the kingdom already, pride is not uh, just a barrier to entrance the first time. Pride is a barrier to our intimacy with the Lord Jesus. Because if you think that you are not utterly dependent upon God, if you think you are in control of your world, you're not going to pray. You're not going to come to the Lord Jesus and humble yourself before him. If you think that you are the master of your own destiny, that's going to prevent intimacy with your Lord. That kind of pride of heart. So whether you haven't believed in Jesus or you do believe, beware of this barrier to coming to him, which is pride. If you are finding yourself at some distance with the Lord right now, maybe ask him, do I have pride in my heart and and confess that thing, confess that to him. Well, that's the first barrier to coming to Jesus' pride. The second barrier is the fear of man. Listen to verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory 
that comes from the only God. Friends, just think for a moment, how did Jesus come to this earth? He came humbly. He came as a servant. Do you want to know what God is like? We need to look at Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the exact radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He didn't come boasting of his exploits. He didn't come uh, seeking the glory of men. Now think for a moment about the religious leaders. Think about what they valued. They valued pomp and circumstance. They valued being seen by others. They valued the right seats in all the meetings of the town. They, they valued being noticed by others as they prayed on the, the corners that people might see how pious they were. They were very concerned about others' opinions. They were very concerned that they had the proper status. Well, Jesus is saying you can't have it both ways. He tells them, how can you believe when you're like that? When you're living for the glory and the attention and the approval of other people. You want your own glory. You want their approval. Can't come to him. That's a barrier to coming to Jesus. But even if you are a believer this morning, if you are trapped by the fear of man, likewise with pride, it will inhibit the intimacy you can have with the Lord Jesus. Because if you are so concerned about what the culture is saying, if you're so concerned about what the person next to you thinks of you, it's going to be really hard to follow Jesus as he's called you to. So perhaps today you need to repent of your fear of man. It's a barrier to coming to him. Well, the third barrier we see in the text is found in verse 45. It's the barrier of false belief. He says, Jesus, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the religious leaders, they thought they were set. They had the law, which was written by Moses. They had memorized large portions of it. They were seemingly obeying a good chunk of it. They thought they were all good. They thought in that they had life. But Jesus says, no, you're not all good. Actually, Moses, I'm not even going to accuse you. Moses is the one who's going to accuse you. He says that their accuser is Moses because they had set their hope in the wrong place. Because if they had truly believed in Moses, they would have seen their intense need for a savior. If they had truly read the law in the right way, they would have seen they could never fulfill the law, that they needed a savior. But they didn't see that. The point is that we can't place our hope in anything or anyone but Jesus. Not in our works, not in Moses, not in Mary, not in our money, no one but Jesus. Well, it's the second time in this passage we're told that the Old Testament scriptures speak of Jesus, the first time being in verse 39. And I wonder this morning if you need a reminder that the Old Testament is not just the side dish 
in the Christian life. And the New Testament's the main dish. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. Moses, everything in the law points to Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures, they point to Jesus. It's all needed and it's all valuable. Sure, sometimes it's a little more difficult to understand. It's granted. (laughs) You're slogging through Leviticus, I get it. But all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And as we understand the entirety of scripture, the more full orb will be our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. Because, friends, Jesus is, in Deuteronomy 18, he is the greater prophet spoken of by Moses. He is the dwelling place for God to which the tabernacle and the temple were pointed. He is the perfect sacrifice that the Passover and the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. He is the perfect king. Some of us are going through the Bible reading right now. We're seeing all these evil kings. He's the perfect king that all those evil kings are kind of like leading us to look for. He's the perfect high priest that ministers on our behalf before God. The point is, is that the whole story is about him. Well, what does that mean for us? I doubt you're tempted to put your hope in Moses right now. I I mean, if I was to take a show of hands, how many of you, you know, trusting in Moses? It's like, okay, some crickets there. But there are many other false belief systems out there to hold on to today. So just as a thought experiment, I want you to think about the purpose of your life. I want you to think about your concerns about the world and where it's heading, your vision of the future as you think about this world. And as you think in that way, if you have a belief system that doesn't include Jesus Christ right in the center of that system, you have a false belief system. And that, friends, is a barrier to believing in Jesus. Many of us have caught these belief systems hook, line, and sinker. And we need to remember that Jesus is the center of all of history and all of the future. Well, I hope you can see that today's passage is a very relevant one in our current cultural moment. Because we're constantly being lured and marketed and enticed by worldviews that do not include Jesus not even mentioned. It's as if he doesn't exist. But to believe the world's narratives, it's not only foolish, but if we do this, we'll not only find ourselves on the wrong side of history, we will find ourselves under the judgment and wrath of God Almighty. Because all of history is about him. All of future is about him. And all eternity will revolve around him. Jesus died on a cross so that we might not bear the judgment and wrath of God. So that by believing in him, we might receive eternal life in his name. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus has given us proof that Jesus is the son of God. There are countless witnesses to confirm this. We're going to go through it in the coming months. And today we've heard from five of those witnesses. But there are some barriers to believing. As we've seen in the text, there's pride, there's fear of man, there's false belief. And so as we close, I want you to ask yourself, where is an area that the Lord might be pinpointing in your own life
that you are believing a lie about Jesus or when you, where you have kind of just caught a belief system of our culture that may not be in line with God's word. Maybe today you need to realize for the first time, Jesus, in fact, is the Lord of all and believe in him. What a gift he has given us through his word. It's, it's not too late to repent. However the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, it's not too late to repent and come back to Jesus today or to come to him for the first time. And it's certainly not too late to spread this good news that Jesus is Lord of all. We have confidence through all of these witnesses, through the whole testimony of Scripture, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled and amazed that you would pursue us who were once your enemies and you have made us your friends. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we affirm today that he is all that we need. We're thankful that we can see who you are through his life. We're thankful, Lord, that you exist in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, now I ask that you would convict our hearts, convince us, the core of who we are, that Jesus is Lord. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.